You're listening to The Dat Project. I am your co-host and unashamed bibliophile, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I'm your co-host, newly minted bibliophile, Aaron Stallworth. This week, we're bringing to our podcast our July book talk. July is my birthday. Our book club, TDPB Reading, is another space to explore the people and ideas that we discuss in our podcast, education, politics, family, justice, culture. We discuss a lot. Yes, we do. In August is TDPB Reading Book Talk number six, and we did something really special. Yes! Our friend and TDP day one, Brandon Wilburn Herbert, joined us for a fascinating discussion of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Please follow Brandon on Instagram at BeLovesTheLove to enjoy more of her delightful book reviews. So for folks who are joining us, Aaron, why don't you go ahead and do our intro so we can get right to it. All right. So one of our first podcast interviews for the Debt Project was with a good friend, Lyle, and and his ace, Winfred. Uh, Winfred let us know that the best way to learn how to debt when you are a young fella is from the cool-ass uncle. So that is always (laughs) a standout uh, podcast for the Debt Project. But the uh, wife of, partner of, friend of Lyle, is now looking at us all right now. Brandon, longtime friend of Rhonda and longtime friend of myself. I've known Brandon for a while. Yes, you can claim me too. Wow, 13 years. <laughs> Time flies, y'all. It so, really does. But Brandon, welcome to the Depth Project. Thank you. Thank you for having me. TDP is our podcast that explores politics and culture through the lens of that, the Black Women's Most Nuanced Gesture. And we have a book club called TDP Being Reading. And this month we have read Parable of the Sower. By the amazing, I've come to find out after reading the book, the amazing Octavia Butler. Isn't she good? She is good. She's really good. Let's start with a little bit about who Octavia Butler was and the time that she published this book. Brandon, you might be our Octavia Butler expert, so I'm just going to contribute one fact. (laughs) Octavia Butler was born January 22nd, 1947. She transitioned into the next life on February 24th, 2006. She began writing when she was like four years old. And her mother said to her, maybe you could be a writer. She goes through life, but eventually begins to publish um, science fiction work, including Parable of the Sower. I do want to fit in just a little bit. So she was also a very awkward young Black girl. And I think that's one of the reasons why science fiction kind of appealed to her in this way, where she can create her own world as she saw it in her head. I think she was determined to be a little bit dyslexic as well. So the fact that she was able to overcome the dyslexia and to write these fantastical books where you wonder how people think so forward thinking in the present is just, it's astonishing. So... As we said, the book was published in 1993. Bill Clinton had become the 42nd president. Al Gore was the vice president. Unfortunately, there was the World Trade Center bombing that happened that year. And there were a number of climatic events as well as climate-related events. A blizzard, a flood, and unrelated to the climate, there was also the Waco standoff. You may remember the Rodney King beating and then the trial So there was actually a lot of 1993 that still feels like 2021. Agreed. The person in office, but we're dealing with some of the same things, but in an exacerbated way. So in our plot in Parable of the Sower, generally what we're seeing is a community that has had to adapt to some pretty significant changes, to water shortages, to extreme fire events to extreme violence, 
to extreme economic devastation in their living, Lauren, our protagonist, is living in a walled-off community with her family, her dad, her siblings, and with the other people who are around them. But then some serious events occur, and Lauren finds herself setting out on a journey because she has to relocate. She has to abandon where she grew up and basically um, find another place to live. So that is our um, plot. That's the situation that that we're looking in. Let's talk a little bit about the characters. So who do we meet in the parable of the sower? Who are some of the folks who make up this community? So we have Lauren, who is the main protagonist, and we follow her. I believe at the beginning of the book, she's age 14, 13, 14. And then we see her through, I believe the book ends with her at 18, 18, maybe going into 19. We see her father, who is a pastor, her stepmother, who is Hispanic. Um, and Lauren is black. I don't know if we've made that clear, but Lauren and her father are African-American. Her stepbrother, she's got four. No, her half-brothers, I should say. She's got four. And in the community with which she lives, there is a mixed races, which based when you read the book, you realize is very unusual because people have really started to silo themselves based on race and mixed race people. So we have Lauren, her dad, her stepmom, and her four half-brothers. We see, uh, what was her boyfriend's name? Was Calvin? Curtis. Curtis. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I could forget that black name, Curtis. Cal- Calvin and Curtis <laughs> kind of, you know, on the same bucket, but go ahead. <laughs> we have Curtis. We have um, her best friend, whose name I don't remember. But we've got just this wealth of people. But, Aaron, if you have more specific names, uh, or Rhonda, I'll let you I'll list them out. Let's see, yeah. we also have hers. Did you mention her stepmother? I did. I didn't say her by name, but yes, the yeah, Cor- yeah, so yeah. Corey. Yep, we have so, Corey. So mom's Cor- Corey. Um, mm-hmm. And then later we meet Harry. Um, well, no, Harry's a childhood friend. Yeah, Who, Harry's a childhood friend. White guy, yeah. childhood friend of uh, mm-hmm. Lauren, uh, Zara. Um, yes. I think she she meets up with them later on after they after they leave their home area. And then there's uh, is it Taylor? I'm trying to remember what Taylor. I had her in my notes. Who was <laughs> She was one of the strangers that just like joined up with the group. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Further yeah. down the line. Yeah, yeah. Further yeah. down the line. Okay, okay. Yeah, was there one character um, about Lauren in particular? We see her grow and evolve over time. So when we meet her at fourteen, what are some of our early impressions of who she is? as a, a young person or as a, uh, a youngish teenager? I just loved her. I loved her because she was practical but still whimsical. I loved her because she, and I, I guess we should say, they're going to be spoilers, so just read the book. But <laughs> oh, even yeah, still, there's no way, okay. Yeah, no. Just let you know, like, we're going to spoil some things. But All she's a hyper-empath. And so because of that, she is, if she sees someone injured, she feels the injury. She's not necessarily, she doesn't have the same cut, even though that's one of the things they brought up. She learned to control, but her mother abused a drug when she was younger. And because of that, she is a a hyper empath. So we see how she's trying to navigate being a teenager, feeling all of the emotions. So if someone gets beat up, she feels the beat. If someone is having sex, she also feels the pleasure. So it's not just pain, it's the pain and the pleasure that comes along with it. But I think I liked her because she was practical. Like she was practical and fantastical at the same time. Like I want this world to be better, but I'm smart enough to realize that there are signs that people need to start paying attention to that they're not, but I'm going to pay attention and prepare myself so that when the time comes, I am at least ready. And I'll try to get as many people ready as possible. But if they don't come along, at least like they can't say that they didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing I, I loved about Lauren, as as a educator, I'm sure Ronnie can relate as, as teacher working in schools. I know uh, Brandon. I know you can relate having a preteen or a soon to be preteen. I don't know what we're oh, calling it. Oh Jesus! <laughs> but but, the, <laughs> but this is how this is how young folks think. I mean, teenagers, preteenagers think. Lauren represented to me uh, that young folk population of, yeah, I hear you. Dad, I hear you, old folks. I hear you, church. 
I know that's how what y'all say, and that's how it's been all this time, and how it's been in the past. But I got some thoughts of my own that we need to need to discuss, and and uh, I have my own vision of what this world needs to be about. Uh, granted, you've been pouring all this into me for for the first so many years of my life. I do have uh, feelings of of there's something different out there that, that I should be pursuing, and that's what I really grasped to about Lauren. And so that was that was a nice piece of her. I, I agree. Like that she was a teacher, and her her empathy showed up not just in how she felt each other's physical pain, but she seemed to feel the pain of being illiterate or uneducated. And so in multiple examples, we see her taking in young children and teaching them how to read, or even older people, and teaching them how to read, particularly women. And so I thought that that was and um, indicative of her nurturing nature, but also to your point about her being practical, she's basically saying, you're gonna need to learn how to read. You need mm-hmm. to learn how to write to survive in the world. And so I am going to teach you, even though she didn't have an advanced education herself, she still took what she knew and instilled it in other people and offered it to um, to other people. And that point comes back often when she is very free with her knowledge. She's not one of those people who I can read, so I'm going to use that as my strength and then lord it over everyone else so that even if they can't read, I can be of benefit, which is what her stepbrother or half-brother did when he got outside. Mm -hmm. She's like, no, this is an advantage that everyone should have the opportunity to have And so because I am able to help you, I am going to make sure that you are also educated to as far as the extent as I am able to do so. Let's take a little sidebar for a second to talk about her brother. I think you're talking about Keith. Keith. Oh, Keith. I really liked him. I I did, too. I did, too. We all have a Keith in our life or at some point. We do. Yeah. Yeah. So Keith is her stepbrother. I think he was younger than she was. And in their family, Mm -hmm. they had taken up a habit of learning how to shoot out of necessity, which as a- Once you got to the age of 15. Yes, once you got to the age of 15, you would learn how to Mm -hmm. shoot to defend yourself, which I thought was a little odd given that they're a church family, but that's just my understanding of church. So we're not gonna touch on that at the moment. Nothing wrong with guns, Rhonda. Even church people gotta know how to shoot. I just, you know, I, that just doesn't go with my Jesus. But we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I'm district. My preacher had a gun growing up. <laughs> I was not raised on the West Coast. I was grew up in the murder capital of the world. So there's just a little sensitivity there. But So Keith feels like he should be able to learn how to shoot a gun as well. He's frustrated that he's not. He has this horrific fight with their father. He's uh, brutally beaten. Uh, by the father and at one point he stands up to him and then Keith begins to leave the house and earn money um, that's in quotes mm-hmm. um, and bring money back to back to the family that you were referencing Brandon mm-hmm. what was lovable about him because it seems like all three of us felt like he was such an endearing character I don't know if it's lovable it's just that I understood how if you are in this isolated bubble and you are starting to feel yourself a little bit, how it can be isolating and stifling to be stuck and have people who don't listen to you when you say you can do things, just go back to you're too young, you're too young, you're too young. Now for his situation, I do think teaching him how to use a gun prior to 15 would not have been a good choice because you see he had a habit of making poor choices. But I just think I I empathized with him in the situation. And I wonder what it would have been like to be stuck or to feel stuck and want to see what else is out there and constantly constantly being told you're not old enough, you're not big enough, you're not strong enough. And him just feeling the need as a preteen, I believe he was 12. I think there was like a two-year age gap between them that Mm. I am old enough. I can do these things and just you watch. So I felt for him. I didn't particularly like him, but I, I felt for him, for sure. Yeah. And what did you think about Keith? What did you find lovable about him? Yeah, I think, did Keith not like his dad? Is that right? I don't think he liked that. He had that. a lot of that 
father-son tension. Like there was a tension. lot of butting heads, yeah. yeah. That was tension there, and just in the sense that uh, Lauren was, I mean, I think Lauren did have an affinity or did like her dad, but she, as she was coming into herself and realizing that there is something different from what I've learned in the past, I think Keith, alternatively, was, was coming into the same thing. Like, there is something else out there for me. He didn't know how to... to uh, go about it in a positive way or or it, I don't know if you could in this context. He was 12. Of course he doesn't yeah. know how to go about Exactly. It. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but but this relates to this relates to this relates to every uh, plenty of stories we've seen about about the black male experience of of I'm going to go out and and do right for my family and, and come back and, and give some money uh, to my mom even though I'm out selling drugs or out doing something negative. I'm going to go out into the world and do this for a while, and then I'll come back. I mean, from good times to the Jeffersons to Boys in the Hood, it's always been those episodes oh <laughs> are, those, are those scenes, are those moments where we have a Keith, right? TV uh, watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> taking it back, uh, if you really want to take it back. But that's always been part of our narrative, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, Octavia Butler put that into this book because it was very relatable. I found Keith to be kind of funny. The way that he would tease um, tease Lauren, they seem to have your classic brother-sister relationship. And even as he was doing wrong, he was so earnest in how he was trying to do wrong. There was um, a positive motivation behind what he was doing. And he um, had been beat down by his father. So that engendered some sympathy for me because the beating was so brutal. And so he then goes out and, um, in a way... But you have to give context there. Now, I don't agree with the beating, but why specifically was he beat? He was beat because he lost the key that opened the gate to get into the community. And so in his father's eyes, not only did you leave and you lost the gun, because remember, he took his mom's gun. Hmm. You lost the gun. You came back with no clothes and you lost the key that could let someone, whomever, into this community and now has the potential to harm your mom, who you claim to love, and your siblings. So I think, did he go, did the father go overboard? Yes. But I think in the father's eyes, he went to like the worst case scenario of what could happen because of this. So it was a really tragic situation, a very tragic end. Mm -hmm. That um, that Keith met, and that I felt just like, oh my God, when when Butler wrote that line that Keith is dead, definitely something in me cracked there. I was like, oh my God. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, it's coming. Like you know, like it can't be good. You know that Keith is not going to survive the entire book outside. It just it doesn't seem plausible. Mm-hmm. But the way with which he died, and the way with which it was described. And the fact that Lauren in her journal, because sidebar, we're reading all of most of the context of this by Lauren's journals that she's writing, keeping track of everything that's going on in her day-to-day life. And the way that she said it took her multiple days to write it out, but she just needed to get her out. But that her dad sat them all down to describe exactly how his body was found. So there was thought behind how Keith was handled and that they made sure that he would also be found. And that is just sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we can say that essentially he was tortured. He was. He tortured was. And the community was tortured. And in the United States, we like to think that we don't do that to people or wouldn't do that to people. But I think Butler is signaling we are on back on that path to torturing people because we know that during slavery people, black people were tortured. So we're not saying that it's never happened. But mm-hmm. within the context of the modern day, we wouldn't think that torture happens. And Butler is saying, Oh, this is what's going to happen in the future. Like we're on our way to torturing people. But even what you said, oh, I'm sorry, right? If I could just add one thing that you said though about this also mean the time of Rodney King. I mean that man was remember those pictures, he was beat bloodied and bloodied and bloodied and his face was not recognizable Mm -hmm. so to have that context also in the framework of this book i think also seems important as well i have a question about lauren's hyper empathy and 
what that means and what that added to her being a leader or how do we see that being an advantage or being a disadvantage to her as she goes on this incredible journey as she faces this task that she has in life? Yeah, I definitely saw it as an advantage. I, th I think when, you're empath when you have empathy, I mean, she wanted to create this new community, this new religion. She had the earth seed idea and everything. I, but I think in order to step out and believe that what you, to get the motivation to do what you need to do or to get the confidence to do what you need to do, you have to believe that the people that are going to go along with you are genuinely have your back. And if you, if you have this uh, empathetic spirit or not very, uh, what, what do they call her? Um, you're right, hyper empath. She kind of had the end on that. She like knew to uh, have that, to be a hyper empath because she knew that other people were kind of feeling the way she was feeling as opposed to feeling the way the old garb felt. I think it could go either way. Because you remember in the beginning, she was very cautious about who she told. Before, she didn't tell Zara and Henry. Henry or Harry? Harry. Harry about it because she didn't want one for it to be considered a weakness and because she'd been so conditioned to not say anything about it because her dad felt ashamed by it. And also because he knew, and as we find out later on in the book, people use that as a tool for managing and keeping people in line. Mm -hmm. So I think to your point, Aaron, it was very good because if you're trying to get this collective of people, I think it's a good trait to have someone who is very attuned to the sensitivities of the people that they would consider like part of the flock, part of their relationship. But then on the flip side, you're also trusting that these people are going to do right with the knowledge that they have. And I think it would show great um, trust on her behalf to make to let others know that she is this way. Because, like she stated earlier on when she was dealing with um, Odude, you know, if you were to get shot, I may not be able to help you. Like, I will feel like I'm get like, if your left leg is broken, my left leg is broken. And then we both broke on this road. So, you know, so I think it's, I can see it going both ways. And also, too, I think we should also just note that hyper empathy seems to come in handy um, in the bedroom. Or rather, wherever you're going to get into right? nature. That's yes. Right. right. Speaking of old dude. And we're going to Marvin Gaye, Luther Vandross, a little needle. She said she could feel his passion. She could feel her passion. Just so much like mm -hmm. love passion going on there that the experience <laughs> seemed to be heightened there. Mm -hmm. And that helps me to think that this text is a feminist text in that um, that Butler is paying keen attention to Lauren's intellect. And so she's saying that Lauren is a powerhouse, she's practical, and she has desires, not just sex. Mm -hmm. And Butler presents sex in a range of ways. It's a very realistic novel in that, in that way, because there are other some abuses of sex. In this case, with Lauren in particular, she's saying that Lauren enjoys sex. She was enjoying it with Curtis. And then here comes old dude, Bancole, and she's like, oh yeah, me and him are gonna get it on. And it's so nice <laughs> to sit here and talk to somebody knowing you're about to get it on. Mm -hmm. And then when they do have sex and they do make love, she's like, oh, I'm just feeling all of the feels here. And Butler gives her a pleasurable experience and doesn't shy away from that. And yeah. so I feel like she was humanizing that. And Aaron, you were saying earlier that, uh, that Butler is uh, painting a full picture of who Lauren is as a person including her sexuality. And I don't think we see that. I haven't seen it in a science fiction novel. No. This is the first sci-fi book that I've read. But I imagine that sexualizing a woman in that way is um, it's infrequent, but she did it so tastefully. Well, normally it's always through the gaze of a male. So even if it's a book written by a woman, which most romance novels are, it's still the pleasure is oftentimes still through the gaze of what the man is doing to pleasure the woman versus kind of like what is the woman taking and receiving from this experience and i like the way that octavia to your point rhonda really showcased the pleasure that lauren was receiving from the experience of joining with bancole and then also then taking bancole's experience as well and then just amplified the entire experience with show like 
I give a little, you give a little, and then we can both have this wonderful time. Mm-hmm. Stop being stingy. Multiple, multiple times. times. <laughs> so there's not just one time that they get it on, but then there's one day that she says, and we had a rest day from walking up 101, and she's like, and I wouldn't let him rest. And I'm like, go ahead, Lauren. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because it is like in his fifties, Lauren is eighteen and she's basically wearing him out and just having a ball yes. when she is not defending the group and the band of people. I think it's also helpful to say that once Lauren had to escape her community and begins this journey, she starts off with just her, Harry and Zara, and along the way she begins to build community and bring people and and uh, no one exists alone, it seems like, in this environment, which I thought was interesting because it seems like an environment where it's every person for themselves. Like you only mm-hmm. have to watch out for your back because resources are so scarce and you can be shot at any moment. But relationships seem to be a really big part of the story. So let's talk a little bit about the relationship aspect of this story. Do you think Lauren was a loner or was she one who really wanted to connect with the community? We always saw her in relation to other people, but to me, she seems to have a little bit of a loner quality or maybe it's just an introverted quality. What do you guys think about that? I think she set herself apart some because she couldn't be completely honest with everyone about one, being a hyper empath. Two, about some of the thoughts that she was having, because you see the time, the first time that she shared kind of her thoughts about going outside and being mindful of the world, it blows up on her because her best friend tells. So I think, I don't necessarily think she was a loner, but I do think that she was just very conscious of what she said and acknowledging that not everyone was ready to hear the truth that she had to, that she had to say. I wouldn't say I ever took her as a loner. I mean, in, in early on, realizing that she had the, the hyper-empath piece, and as we, we call ourselves introverts and extrovert, extroverts right now, I think she had to be somewhat introverted because of that. But I think she still appreciated and loved uh, being being within community uh, nonetheless, even though she did have, have that, uh, that hyper-empath trait about her. So I wouldn't say I never did feel the loner piece never came through to me as a part of her characteristic. Did you see her as a loner, Rhonda? Sometimes that did come across in that way, but maybe <clears throat> thinking about how a person who, you know they say that it's lonely at the top when you're a leader. Mm-hmm. That there are things like, to your point, about her not being able to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. It seemed that she was isolated in a way that she couldn't fully connect with people, and Bencoli came the closest to that as because he was able to see you know, the different sides of her, the different dimensions of her personality within that intimate relationship. And she could Mm -hmm. even confess to him her ambition for Earthsea. She could talk about where she saw this whole journey ending up. And there was something that, um, that she said to him that I thought was really um, intriguing. She says, the world is falling apart. You could help me begin something purposeful and constructive. So in all of that, oh, that quote resonated with you? Oh, what did you think about that quote, B? I love that quote because I think later on in that same conversation, she asked if he still is interested. And he basically, like, do you still want to marry me? In essence, Mm -hmm. he's like, girl, I'm not going to let you go. Like, this is not enough (laughs) for me to be scared. I just love the way that he was like, that doesn't scare me. I got you. We got mm-hmm. each other, and we were going to figure out however way it goes. And I just, that whole passage where she reveals herself, she explains her vision, explains how if he wants to be involved with her, this vision is part of it. It's almost like her baby. Like you take me and you take Earthseed, or you don't take us at all. And he was like, all right, if that's the, if that's the agreement, then that's, it is what it is, and I'm here. And I love that. I did. I love that, too. I think that's a choice that women, particularly women of our generation, feel like we have to make career or marriage or if we're going. They say that you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. 
But mm-hmm. in this moment, Lauren is trying to have everything all at the same time because mm-hmm. she has to have all of it at the same time. She has to lead this group to a safe destination. She also wants the safety and security of having a partner. And she basically lays it on the line. But mm-hmm. I think Nicole's response, like you were alluding to, is also interesting, where he says, oh, I'm going to marry you. So I'm just yeah. kind of wondering, okay, so is are they making a decision collectively? Because each one of them has their priority, like their stake in the ground. She's like, I'm going to lead Earthsea. He's like, okay, I'm going to marry you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's no real, real debate. Erin, um, what's the take from the, the seat that you said in the scene? I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping back into the, the feminist perspective of, of the previous segment about the, the sexuality of it all. That doesn't get to come through. Even in books written by women, uh, we always get to see kind of the male perspective of it all. But here, for her to say that I'm coming to the table and I'm putting all of this on the table, except that if you wish to marry me, I think our society makes women sell themselves short through the media and, and where that does not get put on the table, where their career doesn't get put on the table or mm-hmm. family or, or whatnot. It's just, <clears throat> I'm going to be your partner and what you want to be doing, uh, male, uh, and that's it. But in this case, Octavia Butler brought to the table uh, or brought into her book or wrote into her book that, no, I, woman, have plenty to bring to this table as well. Are you going to go along with, with me on this as opposed to, the opposite that we normally get inside. It's changing somewhat, but um, but it's, I, I do believe it is still pretty rare in our side to see Lauren Lawrence <laughs> Brent landed on the table the way she did in, in the book. Um, but I think it's and she's eighteen. The fact she, that she oh, is like the youngest person yeah. in yeah. this whole collective. I think she's even younger than Zara mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and Harry Harry. And she is leading all of these people with these expanded ideas that no one has heard of. And people are listening and agreeing. Mm-hmm. And here comes Ben Cole, who was, like you said, like I could be his daughter's daughter. Like this is mm-hmm. grandparent age difference. Yeah. And he sees her. Yeah. I think it's this scene like I see you, hyper empath, vision and all. And I still want this. I still want you. And if it means taking all these people to my property, then so be it. Let's do it. Yeah, I love that. I see you, hyper empath, visionary, mm-hmm. and woman who is beautiful and. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, bring it back. Go ahead, bring it back. <laughs> worth desiring. We have one coming your way. Woman who is worth desiring, and I am still choosing to um, to be with you. Let's stay mm-hmm. on relationships and characters for just a second, and then move into Earthseed. The other relationships that we see aren't nearly as well developed as Lauren and Bencoli, uh, partially because they're not the main character, and so you're not the yeah. main character. You don't get a you know fully developed profile, but they are there. So we have Harry and Zara, who are together. They came along from the community. They didn't know each other from the beginning, but then they um, come together. And I think the racial component is um, worth noting here as well, that they were um, a group of, what, two black people and one white person. Mm-hmm. And Before Lauren, Ben Cole? Yes, no, yes. Yeah, no, no, those are what the three. Yes. Yeah, at the You're beginning, correct. Harry, Zara, yes. and Lauren start out, and they are two black people and one white person. And it's interesting that Lauren says, I'll pretend to be a man. And I think Harry is white and Zara is black. So you have a white man, a black man, and a black woman. And so a beautiful young black woman, too, should be noted because they do make note of the fact that she's attractive. Yeah. And so so that's a good point that you raised because that affects the dynamic. Mm-hmm. Lauren says they are likely to attract less attention if they have a white man and a beautiful black woman and then another black man along for the ride. So that tells us a lot about um, about sexual dynamics at the time and about sexism at the time, even though this is essentially a feminist text. So we see Butler making those really astute observations about society at the time. So all along the way, as they're camping out, as they're getting food, their group begins to expand, and each mm-hmm. time their group 
expands, there's this collective decision making, this collective discussion of should we bring people mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the group? Lauren could have said they're coming in, but she didn't. Instead, there was mm-hmm. a decision making process. What do you think about the process of collective decision making and bringing people into into the fold in a situation as dire and as stressed as this one? Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, I'll throw in real quick. Um, I'm not going to get too deep with it, but I mean, the theme of rugged individualism, as well as the theme of a uh, sense of community, you know, we, we speak to the westernized way of being rugged individualists and the more um, cultural way of, that we have with our ancestors of being, having a sense of community. I think what Butler is putting into, into play here is kind of a, a medium of that, of where no, everybody, and I'm sure it's, that's part of our nature too. Everybody cannot be a part of community. We got to make sure that you have some principles, make sure you, you have a certain way of thinking, certain way you, you carry yourself. Something has to determine that you'll be a part of the community. It wasn't just everybody in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't want, we don't wish bad upon you, but for you to truly be a part of our community, you have to fulfill a certain, you know, some criteria. And that's what I saw them doing where they would meet would meet and discuss it as opposed to just saying, yeah, come on along with us if you want to. Yeah. And I like that it was a shift from how she they originally had decided when they started their journey north, where everyone was suspect. No one was joining the group because they needed to keep it close. They all weren't completely trustful of each other either because Harry was white. She knew him only because she was he was her best friend's boyfriend at the time. And let's not even talk about the fact that they were cousins because they kind of skipped over that fact in the, in the book. Zara was kept separate by her polygamous husband. Um, and so not a lot of people knew her either. Zara ended, I think, being the most resourceful of the crew because she had been outside. She had been living on the streets and had a bit more knowledge. But I also thought it was fascinating how the group got more and more diverse the more that they brought people in. So we had the black man, the Hispanic woman, and then their biracial child. We had Allie and her sister, who I believe were white women. I believe that's how it was described. Then we had an Asian, Mexican, Hawaiian combination coming in, and then an Asian. So it was like this collective group of no one quite looking like each other and they're still finding a way to be clear but lauren also was smart in that she made it very like these are the tenets of this group Mm -hmm. if you cannot abide by them then you don't need to continue with us if you can't protect us if you don't want to share if you're not going to be honest then this is not the group for you and there will be no hard feelings but we will go left you can go right And the fact that they made that clear at the very beginning, I think, was a very smart move. Because then, if anything went awry, they can always point back to, like, we told you. We told you what the rules were. You didn't go by the rules, and now you're out. To add to that, I thought it was important that Laura specified that you can't steal. Which mm-hmm. is one of the Ten Commandments, too. And not that this book adhered to um, Christian teachings, but yeah, not at all. It's there. But it, is, um, it just prompted me to think about how violated people feel when they're stuffed mm-hmm. and how it's so antithetical to the tenets of being in community with people. So if one of the principles is sharing, mm-hmm. then a contradiction to sharing mm-hmm. is stealing. It's putting yeah. stealing. You're basically putting yourself first, but when you're sharing, you're putting other people first. So, in a way, Butler is saying, not only are we in this together, but we're always going to put each other first and ensure that mm-hmm. each person gets what they need. And to your point about the group being increasingly diverse, that to me suggests multiracial coalition building. And we mm-hmm. hear that a lot with our um, with our political activists and our movement builders saying, yeah, some of these issues affect black people disproportionately relative to others. The overall system of white supremacy is choking all of us. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to build a multiracial coalition to challenge this overall structure, knowing that the structure impacts different people in different ways. Well, it's like Judas and the Black Messiah. 
where it was mm-hmm. like he got everybody and that's when it became a problem because mm-hmm. then it was like it's not we can't keep them siloed anymore they're all working as a collective mm-hmm. to break this down and now we've got to come in and separate them all and find some issue to keep them separated and so we see them not always agreeing as no group will we do see them solving their problems as a collective and coming up with solutions as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, as we begin to kind of um, close out, we should probably talk about some of the symbols that we saw appear in the book and then finally um, talk about what Earthseed is because we've been going around what Earthseed is and we should probably just dig right into it. Um, fire was an important symbol to you, Aaron, and that took on larger meaning. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you had the, the guys or the folks in the book that were addicted to uh, to a drug that made them want to set things on fire. And and that was just a constant thing. It was like every every page I turned, something new was on fire. They, yep. they looking they looking to the up to the north, there's fire. They look to the left and the right, east and the west, there's fire. Um, but it, it made me think of uh, that drug is kind of a, a greed and the actual fires that they feel they need to set is, is capitalism um, is what I was relating it to. All because, right, snap, snap, snap. You see me, you see me, you see me, you see me, <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> but the, but the uh, I mean, as capitalism comes and, and, and ravages different parts of our communities and the, the nation and world for that matter, it just uses up all that it can, whether it be the oil in the ground or whether it be um uh, whatever resource it is that capitalism gets a hold to, it uses it until it's gone, and then you move on to the next fertile ground, and you mm-hmm. set another fire, or you, you create another entity of capitalism uh, to, until you use deplete those resources. And, and that's what I saw. As they were moving about and seeing these fires, at some point, those were, there were abundant resources. There was fertile ground there. But the fire, you know, um, uh, uh, ruined it and abolished that fertile ground. And I saw that as capitalism being the fire and the drugs they were taking being the greed that made them want to set more fire. And there was an addictive quality to it as well. Exactly. So not only are they greedy and wanting it more, but the addictive element almost made them, made it impossible for them to withdraw themselves from it, right? Because they're attached to it. The other symbol that you noted was the acorn. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, in the beginning of the book, what was it that um, they had some ache? Was it acorn bread or something that they acorn bread? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and she said that was that was her favorite, um, and that it provided great sustenance. And then in the end, as they found their place that they were going to plant the seeds and build their community, they chose to name that community Acorn. Uh, and to me, that symbolized that this will be a place that sustains our community. We're going to be a sustainable community uh, as we build, uh, just as it was a sustaining piece of food for them as in the acorn bread in the beginning of the book. Uh, They will be sustained just the same as a community at the end of the book. So that brings us to the um, the idea of seeds and what earth seed was or is the belief system that she introduces where one of the fundamental principles is God is change. All that you touch changes you and all that you, all that you change changes. I'm not getting it right. Let me go to you. <laughs> Here we go. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The lasting truth is change. God is change. Change reactions to that. I loved all those little tidbits that she gave about Earthseed. I like the idea of it. Um, Coming from the Christian perspective, when all I have known is the Christian perspective, I grew up Baptist, went to a non-denominational, and have kind of made myself back to like a Baptist, but it's a different type of Baptist. I can understand the need, especially in the environment of this book, where you are praying to a God that doesn't seem to answer or praying to a God, which we always say, like, 
you pray to this God that is still allowing bad things to happen. And there are trigger warnings all over this book, right? Mm -hmm. So read this book. Be mindful of the trigger warnings prior to reading because some things will take you all the way out when reading it. Um, That there is this God that allows these things to happen, but then to the point God is change. So you can be the change. How does that look? In Earthseed, it is a community. It's taking care of one another. It's being mindful of your environment. It's being mindful of your resources. It's finding what you're good at, sharing that with everyone else around you, and being in a community that wants to see everyone succeed. So there, even though Lauren is like the mastermind of Earthseed, in no way, shape, or form does it feel like she is this higher being that then everyone is like prosthetizing to. It seems more like everyone understands the premise of Earthseed and then uses that knowledge to then engage and manage their own lives, but always coming back to this principle of goodness and fairness and lovingness and equity within this group. One quote about Earthseed that resonated with me is towards the end, well, the middle, I guess, chapter 16. Earthseed cast on new ground must first perceive that it knows nothing. Hmm. And that resonates with me because it, one, speaks of humility and says, there's no way that we can understand the entirety of the circumstances in which we're operating or even the entirety of the world. And so first, suspend all of your belief, whatever you thought you knew, just let it go and then Mm -hmm. take on this new belief. I struggled a lot with God's change. And we talked a little bit about that on our side chat, because again, coming from the Christian tradition, what you're taught is God is unchanging. God is the same God that they were yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And in that, we should take comfort. So as the situation changes, we can be assured that God is the same. If God looked out for Moses, then God is going to look out for me. If God delivered Jonah, then God is going to deliver me. But the way I interpreted this idea that God is changed is that you can find God in the process of changing. And Mm -hmm. as you move from one situation to the other, you are still being sustained as you are changing and as you are also changing the circumstances in which you are operating. So that's how I'm trying to reconcile this idea of God is change against the notion of an unchanging God, which in a way is kind of comforting to me to know that God is unchanging. But Mm -hmm. to survive and to adapt, like Pastor Heber talks about in an upcoming interview, you do have to be willing to to change in situations. And yeah. take on I, mean, I think I can relate to what Brandon is saying as far as being a new Baptist. Uh, if we were to, to think <laughs> back, if we were to sit in congregations, you know, one decade ago, two decade, decades ago, up to 10 decades ago, there would be so much that we disagree about coming from any given minister's mouth about how we should live our lives, who we should love, who we should care for, what, should, what is right and what is wrong. And I think that symbolizes change. I mean, if you talk to a minister who's been preaching for 50 years and ask them, go back in your notes from 1963 and tell them if you preached that same sermon in 2021, they would probably say, no, I don't believe mm-hmm. that. Any, I don't believe that anymore. So that speaks to what to the change that that is, as we're calling it now, God. Um, and one of the quotes from the book, I think it was a quote, it says, in order to rise from its own ashes, a, a phoenix first must burn. And you kind of have to you have to kind of have to burn down some of that old way of thinking and and plant some fresh seeds to see what grows. Those seeds are still planted by God, but God needs to be cultivated and and and, uh, and, and regrown and reborn. Uh, still, the essence of it is God, but the fruit that it bears may be slightly different, slightly sweeter than the fruit that it was bearing uh, decades ago. And so, I, I do see it as as change and change being a good thing as we related to God. 
And then going to your point, though, about fire, Aaron, there are some seeds that don't germinate until they are burned. Like there's some seeds and some plants that will not grow until after a fire has come through mm. because they need a certain amount of temperature and pressure in order to get to the process where they can germinate. So the fire and the seeds and the fact that fire does not have to be bad. Change does not have to be bad. And in this earth seed consideration that Lauren brings, you can make good out of something that seemingly is dangerous, has caused her physical harm because she lost her entire family in one night. Um, and you can spin that around and see the positive out of it, even in the midst of. And I think that is Absolutely. definitely something worth uh, appreciating. So two questions as we um, close out right there. So the first question is, in a group like this on a journey, what skill would you bring? What Would you have been a night watcher? Would you have been someone who's able to defend? Would you have been a cook? Can you barter with people? Can you earn money? Or, or is there another skill that you would bring to, to this group? If you were talking to Lauren and trying to make your case about why you should be able to join the group. What would you say you're bringing to, to the team? Mm. I don't know, Rhonda. The easy one was to cook. Was to cook. Yeah, I'll cook some food for you. <laughs> that's the easy well, choice. Right it is a skill. <laughs> but, uh, I, I would definitely have to put some deep thought into it. I'm sure there, there's some more skills I could bring than besides a good bowl of chili. Well, but. Aaron, okay, we so may be the same. <laughs> we may be the ones who are like, put us where you want us and we will learn what it is that needs to be done. Because I can like, I know a little bit of cooking. I know a little bit of first aid. I know a little bit. I could teach. Yeah, I know, I know a little karate. bit of this, a little bit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know a little bit of a little bit, but it's funny because now that I'm seeing my dad and my dad is a farmer, he's always been very good at planting and growing anything. My mom was a nurse and a teacher. And I look at me, I'm like, I have these book smarts, but I can barely keep one plant alive in my house. I haven't tried to grow anything. So I'm like, now I'm thinking about like, if I were in this situation, like I would be screwed. <laughs> so I'm like, now I'm like, I don't, I do know. I was like, I don't start. <laughs> okay. So one, you're an excellent coach. You're an incredible nurturer. So you could certainly take care of children if they were children that needed to be tended to mm -hmm. so leading the group see this is why you need friends who can see the vision when you think right. you're all like this and they're like no you need to think outside of your afro think outside <laughs> of it yeah. so what would you bring Rhonda? so strategizing i think would be a skill um my weakness would be in defense though like using a gun to fight people and you actually need to use a gun yeah. That's not really my skill set. I guess I could learn. I would have to adapt to that. Because you at least need to be comfortable with having to use it, not necessarily using it. So in case of, you need to know how to shoot. Like, I don't want to have a gun, but I also want to be able to know how to use it if the case arose. Mm -hmm. If but, I do have yeah. to shoot somebody, I will pull that out of me. See? Yeah. If it's necessary, you'll find that. That DC will come out and be like. Yeah. <laughs> will come out. So my second question, as we come to our third closing, we also get we a little bit of Speak, Speaking of Baptist preaching, right? Go ahead. So my third question for us is: How did reading this book change? Uh, Aaron, you want me to go first, Rhonda? You want me to go yeah, first? Yeah, because you've read it twice, girl. So it's maybe even more. I've read it twice. more than twice. I used to read this book like once every year or mm. so. And every time yeah. I read it, I would be like, I've got to get my, I got to get my kit together. I got to get my backpack ready. And I never do. Mm. Um, but one of the things that I realized after reading, like, I need to be ready. And right now, I am not prepared for the just-in-case. And now it's making me a little itchy that mm -hmm. I don't have things in place for emergencies. Yeah. So I'm going to do better about, you know, having cash available. Because in this particular time, cash was king. Um, having cash, having food, having a plan for what to do if. And after reading this book now for the umpteenth time, I realized like I really need to get on it. 
to be more ready for the what ifs. Yeah, not only having read it multiple times, but also having gone through the year that we just did. When we yeah, saw absolutely. Shortage, when we saw shelves at Walmart, Bayer, when um, even if we had a storm and the power goes out and it's Corona, when we couldn't mm -hmm. get to our job or when our job seemed insecure and we needed mm -hmm. childcare. So mm -hmm. there were so many fundamentals that broke down in society over this past year that really highlighted your point, Brandon, about needing to, to be prepared. And that reminds me, Erin, of what Brian Williams told us about going through the pandemic of having to stay ready and be ready to create the moment. So, Erin, uh, Harvey, how does this book change you? Yeah, I mean, great points for both of you to be prepared. I was a Boy Scout too. Uh, adding on to the catastrophes of, of the year in the January 6th, uh, that moment, I'm, I'm like, am I prepared? I'm like, where is, I got a baseball bat, but where is my gun if these fools uh, come up my street acting mm -hmm. a fool like they are at the Capitol? So those those moments did cross through my, through my mind where how prepared am I really to protect my family? And we're, we're spoiled and we take for granted. That was a that was a fleeting moment. You know, now, I'm, no, I didn't go buy a gun. No, I didn't get a bigger baseball bat. Uh, no, I didn't get a more powerful alarm on my on my home, uh, or, or or come up with plans to to meet up with family or anything like that. But but yes, uh, being prepared. But the main thing that that I that I said earlier that stood out was just listening to our youth and, and thinking about what is going on in their minds because they are you know I believe the children are our future. You know I sang that song in my sixth grade graduation. <laughs> but, but but this book made me think about that as I was reading. I'm like, this Lauren, man, she's four, age 15 to 18 while I'm reading this book. And all of this that is in her, you know, this is in some of our, our youth, in many, if not all of our youth today, their own radical imaginations of what the world can, can truly be uh, is what stood out for me in, in reading the book. Um, so that's, that's my main takeaway is really listening to and respecting the thoughts and um, visions that our youth have. Yeah. I ended this book more confident that we can survive basically a collapse in society or what seems to be a collapse in society. Watching Lauren and observing her navigate through these incredibly treacherous situations, she describes hearing gunfights in our away or a mile or so away, but still sleeping through them. And she says, I can't believe I got used to that, but that is our mm -hmm. reality. Or the way that she was able to develop um, a trust system or a way to discern if a person should come into the community or not. Um, that was a skill that she learned. She learned to adapt mm -hmm. to that. So there were so many changing situations that she learned to adapt to. And I thought, oh, I guess I can learn to adapt as well by seeing this through Lauren. So the book helped me to see a version of myself that I would not have thought about and don't want to think about. But it's here. We know that climate, the climate is changing. The climate has changed. We know that the economy is unsustainable, that it's on a path to create greater and greater division and resentment because so few have so much. So all of the indicators are there that um, absent dramatic change in one direction, we are going to move in the other direction and we all need to, uh, to be ready. This was an amazing Agreed. conversation. Agreed. Thank you, sister, for talking books with us. You are welcome. I'm so Brandon. glad this book was picked. We're bringing you back, Brandon. We have 470 pages to read of our, our dear TDP family member, uh, Derek Musgrove's uh, Chocolate City. I'm looking forward to it. A DC fellow DC native of yours, Rhonda, said this is our favorite book she's read about DC, and she does a lot of reading. A reader like you and Brandon. Oh, I haven't read it yet, but uh, I will so love it. I'm looking forward to it. This is our August book, Chocolate City. I'm going to crack it open tomorrow because. I got, I got a lot of reading to do. That's a lot, of <laughs> a lot of reading to do. So as we close out, we want to shout out some local bookstores in the D.C. area if you are in the district. And we'll drop it in the show notes. There. Cool beans. Um, 
So there's that. We want to remind everybody also that resistance is a highway with many lanes, and we hope you find yours. Take care, folks. Thanks for joining. Bye. Peace.